0: Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FDIC. Spot Me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.
1: You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Ooh, Ooh. 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 Ooh supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it you're a freak with a dark shameful secret but you're not the only one catch your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun now your
2: healing has
0: begun it's back with money
2: with gabby dunn well hello friends i'm gabby dunn my ignorance about money is second to none i didn't write that my producer did seems like an insult but a clever one So how's everybody enjoying filing their tax returns? Are we all enjoying paying to live in the country led by a purported billionaire who refuses to show his tax returns and prove he's actually worth as much as he says? I actually don't even care if he's worth as much as he says. Just just show him. Everybody does. We have no idea whether someone like him who's benefited from the system to such an extreme degree has ever paid a dime back into the system so that others might benefit from it. How's everybody feeling about that? It's pretty good, right? This, of course, is just the most extreme example of how frustrating tax season can be. Beyond the complexity of all the forms and regulations that accompany taxes, I think one of the hardest things about them as a concept is that it's easy to feel disconnected from the purpose they serve. It's not just that the whole system is so hopelessly complex that most of us just feel fortunate to get through April without owing more money. It's that even if we understand logically that a portion of our money is being reinvested in the well-being of the state and country we live in, we don't have much of an emotional connection to the value of that. The philosophies behind those investments are mostly hidden beneath all the complexity, which is probably a little bit on purpose. We should know that by now. It's season two. But no more fellow deadbeats. Me and my reliable batch of incredibly basic questions to the rescue. Today on the show, we're going to dig into the philosophy behind taxation a little bit. My hope is that this episode will leave you with some concrete ideas to hold in your mind while you're quivering with anxiety as you file your return. Perhaps we can find a little bit of clarity about why it's worth the annual frustration, or what needs to change to make it worth the annual
0: frustration.
2: To do that, we are, as usual, going to talk to three badass women. The first of which is Kelly Phillips-Erb, also known as Tax Girl, That's her superhero name. Kelly writes for Forbes and is an expert on all things tax-related. Like, for example, what the hell taxes even are?
3: Well, historically, we've had taxes for all kinds of reasons. Um, War tends to be, I mean, war is kind of the thing that has driven tax policy in the U.S. for years. It's actually why we had an income tax in the 1860s, that was kind of the first experiment on, on um, income taxes. It's arguably what led to, uh, you know, taxes led to war in the 1700s. So it's used to pay expenses, and depending on where you live in the country as well as the world, what those expenses may be vary. And um, so in the U.S., we've kind of decided that there are certain things that we feel that society should pay for together, and that includes our military. Again, that's a, a large expense, but also, you know, we pay for subsidized housing. We pay for uh, roads and parks and all kinds of things. So, and and again, depending on where you live, you also may be paying for football stadiums and, and other projects. So the, kind of the philosophy is that we need to raise revenue and how do we do it? Everybody should pay something.
2: So when you do your taxes every spring, what exactly are you doing?
3: That's really actually a great question, because I think a lot of people think you're paying your taxes when you're doing them in spring, but you're not, because the U.S. actually has what we call a pay-as-you-go system, which is that every time you get your paycheck, uh, assuming that you're an employee. The government's already taken out not only Social Security and Medicare taxes, um, but they've also taken out state taxes, unemployment-related taxes, and uh, federal income taxes. So really what people who have um, jobs that are paid... Uh, About employer, self-employed folks were a little different, but what um, people who are who are paid by another person are really doing in the spring is they're really reconciling their tax returns. They're kind of figuring out what they should have paid and then deciding whether they've paid enough or too much. And interestingly, most folks get a refund. It's a little different for self-employed persons because those folks are still supposed to pay as you go, right? So you're still supposed to be making estimated payments and such. Um, But I found in my practice that those are generally people writing the checks in April because self-employed persons often underestimate how much they might owe.
2: Yeah, that's me. What's the difference between state and federal taxes? Well, so not every state has an income tax.
3: Um, there are a handful of states, Florida, for example, is one of them, that doesn't have a state income That's tax. That's like why uh, my parents live there. <laughs> Oh, that's why a lot of retirees pay there, uh, move there because they don't, they don't want to, um, you know, it's nice weather plus no income tax. But, you know, they, they still have bills to pay too. So they get you other ways. I mean, it's not a tax free state. There, there are other taxes that you pay. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a big, um, draw for a lot of folks and for businesses depending on the state. Um, but each state sets their own, uh, income tax. Whether or not they have one is, is one of the things they decide. And then they decide whether or not it's going to be, a flat tax like we have in Pennsylvania where I live. Um, or a graduated tax like we have in New Jersey, and that's where uh, higher income folks will pay a higher tax rate the more that they make. Um, And then we have a federal system, which is composed of a lot of different kinds of taxes, um, which are payroll taxes and income taxes. And, of course, the really interesting thing from an income tax perspective that comes up every election year is that we don't have a flat tax. We actually have a progressive tax, so the rates go up as income increases.
2: That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Every election cycle you hear Republicans talk about the flat tax. Like, why do they think that's a good idea? What is that?
3: Uh, but the notion is with a flat tax that you would pay, like, let's just say 10% because that's an easy number. Everybody, no matter what you make, is going to pay 10%. The idea is that it would be simple, right? And so they always say, this is the way we can get rid of the IRS, and it would be so much easier for taxpayers, and, you know, the list goes on. Um, but there there's a few reasons why people don't care for a flat tax and why we we still have a hard time getting it through. One of them is that we really, as a country, really love our tax preference items. Like we love our student income uh, interest deduction. We love our home mortgage interest deduction. Um, People like their medical expenses deductions. One of the things that would happen is that those things would go away. Then you start looking at organizations that also complain because if you were to drop, let's say, the charitable expense deduction so that, you know, you wouldn't allow a deduction for charity anymore, then maybe people wouldn't be as encouraged to give to charity. So charities don't like that. And also people don't like the flat tax sometimes because traditionally the plans have been uh, geared towards wage earners and not towards other kind of income. So if Warren Buffett uh, or uh, Zuckerberg took a dollar the salary, then their 10% would be $0.10, right, because we wouldn't charge them tax on their interest and dividends and all of that other stuff that right now we're taxing them on. But for you and me who maybe get a paycheck, we would be taxed. You know, that's why you see all kinds of different variations where people try to fix it to make it more fair. And if you could see me right now, I'm doing fair and air quotes. But the problem becomes that when you start doing those things to fix it, then you get back to what we have now.
2: Um, so it's, it's popular on the, the left to talk about funding universal health care or free college by raising taxes on the rich. Do the rich people already pay more tax? Is this, is this like a, a good idea?
3: In theory, um, yes, the people at the top pay more in taxes. Uh, the idea behind that is that they should consume more in services, too. There's this whole idea that the more you have, the more you need, right? Um, so, whether that's true or not is another issue, but we do have a progressive tax system, which means that the, the people at the top are paying more. At the top that the interesting thing about that I think kind of gets lost in that discussion is that everybody pays the same rate on the same amount of income. so for the first ten thousand dollars, everybody's paying the same tax rate on that first ten thousand dollars. Everybody pays the same tax rate on the next ten thousand dollars. So if you say that somebody's in a thirty six percent tax rate, um they're not paying thirty six percent on the first ten thousand. They're paying the same that you're paying um, they only pay on those those top dollars. Um, And then, of course, the argument is also that those are folks who, and I used to do this for a living, so I know that it is true, that those are also folks who pay people to help them minimize their tax burden. You invest because we do give incentives for investment. um, That may be different from what we do for wage earners. So in theory, you could be paying more out of pocket as somebody who's working at a fast food restaurant, like compared to your income than somebody like, Mr. Buffett, who is paying maybe a lot of capital gains taxes, which are a lower rate.
2: What are the, the values that taxes encourage or
3: discourage? I think there's a lot of them that are present in the tax code. Uh, a big one, and we talked about this a little bit, is the um, the home mortgage interest deduction. So there is a general philosophy that home buying in the U.S. should be encouraged so there's a tax break for doing so. Um, it's kind of interesting because we don't encourage all kinds of borrowing, and, and under the Reagan administration, actually, they um, there used to be a deduction. You used to be able to claim your credit card interest for uh, as a deduction, and uh, they decided that wasn't good public policy because it encouraged borrowing, so they eliminated, eliminated that under the Reagan administration, but they kept the mortgage interest deduction because they felt very strongly that that should be encouraged. Um, other kinds of things are behaviors that we like to see encouraged. So, for example, um, paying your other kinds of taxes, like real estate taxes, you get a, a reward for doing that on your federal income tax return. Charitable contributions are a big one. You know, when you give to charity, you get a deduction. So those are the kinds of things they encourage you to do. On the opposite side, you can be penalized, for example, for not having health care insurance right now um, if you have enough money to, to buy it on your own. So you have to pay a penalty if you don't have health insurance. So there's a lot of ways that the the government tries to either encourage you to do certain kinds of behavior or discourage you. And, and then other other kinds of taxes that might be local that might not be federal are the ones that we've seen a lot lately like um, soda tax for example in certain cities uh, Philadelphia is one of them where they are trying to make it expensive for you to drink soda. The idea is that if you want to keep drinking it you'll keep paying if otherwise you'll stop. Cigarette taxes, um, taxes on booze, Um, a lot of luxury taxes are social. They're basically social in nature that they're trying to either encourage you or discourage you from certain kinds of behaviors.
2: What kind of public programs are supported by our taxes that you
3: don't think people tend to think about as much? It's what keeps the lights on in government. So they do everything from... You know, we fund the patent office to the folks that inspect your food to make sure that your meat is safe when it gets to you, you know, from the farm to the grocery store. The folks who make sure that the gas that you're putting in your car is exactly what it says that it is, and it's not going to explode. I think Commissioner Koskinen said that the IRS brings in 92% of the revenue For the country, I think that's the number. And um, you know, if that's true, just think about paying judges and the parks department. And you know, there's so much federal money that is used to make sure that the country, as we think of it, continues to function.
2: I know. I feel like a lot of people just go, "Oh well," you know, even in the administration right now, they'll go like, "Well, you know, I don't need to be paying for maternity." because I'm an old man, or, like, I don't I don't drive <laughs> over that specific bridge, so why do I have to pay? But that's, like, part of living in a country.
3: Right, And but people do that all the time, though. I mean, I grew up in this rural area in North Carolina that was largely um, retirees were moving down there because it was just the weather was so lovely. And these are the people that used to complain that they didn't want their property taxes to go up to fund the schools because they didn't have children. I mean, you know, you have to kind of decide that, you know, is do you want people to be educated. <laughs> is, is that good for your country or for the area where you live? We out there for things that we don't use. Um, but yeah. uh, I do agree that that's part of living in a country.
2: After the break, queer women take note. Reforming the tax code needs to be part of your gay agenda. You know what that means. It's the Carrie Wade Queer Feminist Anti Capitalist Alarm! Stay tuned. So, the vast majority of us probably take a path of least resistance approach to our taxes. We sit down in front of our computers once a year, we throw some money at TurboTax, and we hope that it makes all the right calculations for us to get a little bit of money back. But my next guest says we ought to be thinking a bit more deeply about whether the system we're paying into has our best interests at heart. And when I say think a bit more about it, I think you guys know that I mean reckon with the fact that it's rigged against us. And by us this time, I mean specifically queer women who, despite the fact that the Trump administration doesn't want to count us in the 2020 census, we exist and we pay taxes. Autostraddle.com writer Laura Mandanis says that when we do, we're supporting a broken economic structure. Laura wrote an article that I absolutely loved called Three Good Reasons Why Taxes Are a Queer Women's Issue. And because I have this podcast, <laughs> headlines with taxes in them catch my attention now. Who even am I? But I read the article uh, and I was fascinated and I loved it and I wanted to have Laura on the show.
1: So basically, um, there are two things schools of thought on what makes for a good and fair tax code. The first school of thought is that everybody should pay the same taxes in a flat rate across the board. So for example, sales taxes are flat. Like if you and your neighbor go to the grocery and buy bread, um, you both pay a 7% tax or whatever it is where you are. But the second school of thought is that everyone should pay taxes where the rate takes into account how much they're able to pay. So for example, the way that we think about income taxes is people with more money get charged a higher percentage and people with less money get charged with a smaller percentage. Um, so as queer women, we tend to be lower income because of the patriarchy and structural oppression against us, employment barriers because of, you know, gender presentation or discrimination, like overt discrimination. Um, some of it's sort of the undercurrent of America where women are just paid less than men. Some of us are estranged from our families and, cut off from that generational wealth or, you know, learning about how to manage their own money. But when it comes down to it, we do better under progressive tax code and less well under a flat or regressive one. What are some of the ways
2: that, like, queer women find themselves outside the economic mainstream?
1: Yeah, so over time, um, the tax code in this country has gotten less and less progressive. Um, And in particular, tax benefits have gotten more and more favorable to people who already have money. Um, So some examples of that are capital gains. When people are lower income, they tend to rely more heavily on wages um, in order to be able to feed themselves and pay rent and so on. Um, Whereas when people have a lot of money already, they'll invest it and more of their money that they have is coming from already having money and investing it and getting paid that way. So right now, capital gains are taxed at a lower rate than wages. So people that are lower income lose out um, is one example. Another one is that Um, Tax-free retirement or pensions um, really only benefit people who are able to save for retirement. So we have things like Roth IRAs um, and all these programs that are set up to encourage people to save for retirement, which I think is a good thing. Um, But it only benefits, again, people who already have money that can save for retirement. Uh, One that drives me particularly crazy is Social Security. Currently, Social Security payroll tax applies at a flat rate um, at 6.2% across all ages, up to a cap of $118,000. So everyone earning under that cap, which is disproportionately female, um, pays that tax on their entire income, whereas people who make more than that, they don't get taxed above that amount. It's costing people who earn less money, more, to buy in. And then when they pay out the benefits, people who have contributed lower amounts over their lifetimes actually get lower benefits back. So right now, the average yearly Social Security income for women over 65 is about 13,000, whereas for men, it's closer to 17,000. And, you know, if a family has two women, they get hit extra hard by that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you talk about how this problem manifests, like, with the economic expectations around family structure? Because I'm sure even, you know, like, let's say a single mom household or a household with two moms, the costs
1: or the taxes are sort of not set up for them. Yeah, I think that one thing that hurts women like a lot um, more than men is that we often have career breaks. I think for straight women, it's sort of the pressure that you have a kid and your husband is supposed to you know, pay for your family. Um, you drop out and you're like a stay-at-home mom or what have you. Um, and for queer women, sometimes it's that, but it's also, you know, oh, there's a childless woman. <laughs> she should be doing some sort of unpaid labor, um, either taking care of sick family members or dealing with community stuff. So when we have these career breaks, it means that when we go back into work, um, we wind up with a lower income. And over time, that compounds, you know, for things like taking into Social Security, how much we have available for retirement, and over a larger scale, how much money is in our community to support each other. Oh, that's a big
2: one, yeah. In my experience, the queer community is, especially women, like very connected to each other, but we also have less money with which to take care of each other. Yeah, it's really terrible. Do queer women rely more on Medicare? I think that women in general rely more on Medicare.
1: Um, yeah. And obviously if they're queer women, there's two of us. So it's really, we, we lose out more when there's um, public benefits that are taken away. I mean, it's tough because this
2: podcast itself, uh, you know, I always joke that I'm becoming like more and more socialist every episode because it's like... <laughs> Yeah, because it's hard to be like, okay, well, I'm this like queer feminist, perhaps becoming more and more anti-capitalist person. And then it's like, how do you teach people about taxes while existing within this system? Which is why it's so interesting that your article was on autostraddle, because like that's a queer publication. It's almost like, is it let's teach them how taxes don't work for queer women? Or is it like, let's just all burn the system? Like, how do you how do you marry that, you know? How do you marry both yeah, of those? Yeah, I really
1: struggle with that, too. Um, <laughs> as someone who works in engineering, you know, I make a, a reasonable income, um, and I work with a lot of men, and part of me is torn, like, I want to work from the inside, and, like, we need women in positions of power so that we can change things to help our community. But also, like, everyone is terrible. I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> like, I just want to burn it to the ground. <laughs>
2: Yeah, like start over, make a whole new tax situation. Like, why are we still relying on the idea that it's a heteronormative household and that the man is making more money? Why is there still this like wage gap? Why are there still certain deductions for things that like maybe people, you know, different people wouldn't? I don't know. I don't know. But also like, you know, taxes go to like help Planned Parenthood, which is certainly a huge resource for queer women. So I don't know. It's just there seems like it's it's just a big issue of, like, wealth inequality.
1: Um, so what can we do? I think uh, probably the first thing is to talk about it. There have been groups in the past that have worked on this, and they keep getting shut down because they don't have enough finances to work on this, um, ironically and terribly. Um, and the second step would be wherever we see – you know other organizations not necessarily queer specific or feminist specific, but um candidates that are advocating for more progressive tax codes um that's something that impacts our community, and we should probably be supporting uh, I
2: never feel better at the end of these
1: <laughs>
2: great. If things are feeling bleak, and it wouldn't be an episode of Bad With Money if they weren't, stay tuned because after the break, I'm back with someone whose existence is basically reason enough to file your return this year. We've talked about Trump more than usual on this episode, and that's because we're discussing the principal way that his agenda will be funded, the money the government harvests from all of our wallets. That's a pretty demoralizing thought, which is why I wanted to close out today's show by talking to someone who's working as hard as anyone to disrupt that agenda. Cecile Richards is the president of Planned Parenthood, and she says it's more important than ever to fight for women's health. Did you guys hear that? She's the president of Planned Parenthood. Cecile Richards is on my show. I hope I sound normal when this interview plays because I was like peeing myself. I wanted to talk to an organization that taxes actually help or, like, you know, put a a, a right. face or a real thing to, mm-hmm. to what people are paying. Because, you know, you complain about taxes, but then you don't realize that you're actually using those services. Right. Um, so... I know people are are talking a lot about Medicaid and how it's a big part of how many women are able to access planned parenthood um yep. but one thing I hear people say a lot is I don't really understand what Medicaid is or I'm not sure what the difference between Medicare and Medicaid is. Can you explain why Medicaid's important for planned parenthood?
4: Sure. And and it's kind of it is confusing because folks are talking about defunding Planned Parenthood, but we're not actually in the federal budget. Right. Right? So it's not it actually what they're trying to do is say that folks who come to Planned Parenthood for preventive health care services uh, could no longer come to us because right now we work just like every other hospital or health care provider, and that is that folks on Medicaid, and that's people with low incomes who qualify for Medicaid health care services, come to us. Uh, we have 650 health centers some odd around the country, and they come to us for birth control for uh, a lot of cancer screenings. A lot of young people come to us for STI testing and treatment. And those are services then that we are reimbursed for. And so it, it is very confusing because it isn't actually, I mean, that is, obviously those are tax dollars, but they're used to reimburse us just like they would be used to reimburse uh, a hospital if you went there for care instead. Um, so that's kind of what, that's what is at stake. And it, uh, it, more than half of our patients come to us uh, through Medicaid. So it's a lot of folks.
2: So, I mean, can you explain what would be the problem of defunding Planned Parenthood? Sure. I mean, what it would mean
4: is that then if you were on Medicaid and you needed birth control or you needed, you found a lump in your breast and needed to get a screening, you would no longer be able to go to Planned Parenthood and use your Medicaid card. And one of the arguments that our opponents uh, in Congress use is that, well, you could go somewhere else. But the problem is, for a lot of folks, there isn't anywhere else to go. Like I was actually just in Wisconsin where we have dozens of health centers, and a lot of them are in small towns. Medically underserved communities, and that's I I actually spoke to one of our patients who had found an ovarian cyst had been detected at Planned Parenthood, and it was because she could get in and actually see us that she was able to get the treatment she needed. And I I think some folks don't recognize that, uh, particularly um, for women sometimes who have a who need need a uh, screening immediately. And you, if you were going to go to a community health center, you might have to wait a month or two. Mm-hmm. And we just can't wait that long. And so it literally would mean, you know, millions of folks would no longer be able to come to Planned Parenthood for the preventive health care.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've I've used Planned Parenthood all of college because it was affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I not to whatever TMI, but I like used it for like yeast infections or like mm-hmm. things that things that are just like medical women's medical care. Exactly, or, you know, people with vagina medical care. I mean, that's right. I know it's. I mean, that's why, and that's why I think folks
4: in this country are so perplexed at why this would be Congress's main focus, or at least for some folks in Congress, is because people come to us not for political reasons, and why would why they would make this a political issue? I don't understand because basically people come to Planned Parenthood because they need uh, quality, affordable health care, and again, if you're in a community where If you need family planning, you don't need to wait a month or two months to be able to get your birth control. You need to actually come in now. And we're really proud of the fact that we see folks uh, no matter what. And that's been part of our history for the last hundred years. And what Congress is doing is now basically saying – you know, even though they say they're trying to pass these bills to help people choose their health care provider, uh, they're being completely contradictory when they say, "Unless you're a person that wants to go to Planned Parenthood, and then we're going to tell you you can't go there anymore." Ha!
2: So why? What is the whole misconception of like, well, your taxes are paying for abortions? Yeah,
4: I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked that because, look, um, the federal government has banned tax dollars for abortion for many, many years. Now, at Planned Parenthood, we disagree with that policy because we believe there's a lot of women uh, with low incomes who actually don't have access to abortion services, and it's discriminatory, but that is the law, and we abide by the law. So what your tax dollars are paying for are folks to be able to get, again, birth control, uh, get tested uh, and treated for uh, sexually transmitted infections. And then again, for a lot of women, we're their only doctor. The crazy thing is, too, we're actually now at a historic all-time low for teenage pregnancy in the U.S., and wow. we're at a 30-year low for unintended pregnancy. And it's because, frankly, we've done a lot better job, uh, and Planned Parenthood has been part of this, and getting folks access to birth control that they could afford uh, or that was covered in their insurance plans. That was a huge part of the fight for the Affordable Care Act was to say, if you know, if you need family planning, you should be able to get it at no cost. Um, What this Congress is trying to do by, quote unquote, defunding Planned Parenthood or blocking people from coming to us would actually have the opposite impact. It would mean more unintended pregnancy, fewer folks who have access to affordable birth control. And it it just doesn't make any sense.
2: Yeah, if you don't like abortion, wouldn't you be very pro birth control? And even that's if you're think. <laughs> even if you're a person with a penis, like don't you 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 really every time you have sex with someone, you really want to knock that person up? That's really what you want?
4: Well that's the crazy thing, is because I mean birth control is wildly popular. In fact, um more than 90 percent uh, of women in this country use birth control at some point. And sometimes it. a lot of times it's for preventing unintended pregnancy, but it's also for a whole lot of other medical reasons. Oh,
2: yeah. That's, for your skin so, to help acne. It helps regulate cramps.
4: That's right. Endometriosis. There's a whole lot of reasons. But basically, that's what this government is now trying to do. And this is, you know, the the White House as well as uh, the Republicans in Congress are basically saying, we're going to tell you you can't get those services anymore. And you combine that with what they're trying to repeal under the Affordable Care Act, which has really benefited people to get family planning, uh, to get preventive services. It's gonna be pretty devastating, and that's why folks have been really standing up and speaking out.
2: So most of the people I think that listen to this show believe passionately that women's health is a national priority Um, and so it's easy to be infuriated that anyone would doubt that position how do you think we can best make a compelling case that women's health particularly in low-income communities is an important part of the benefits of our tax dollars like how I don't know it sucks to have to be like more than just women will live like what
4: right no I look it's Preventive health care is just good for everybody. It, it's not only good for women's health, it actually saves the government money, obviously. I mean, being able to prevent unintended pregnancy, being able to get early detection uh, of cancer and where it's most treatable, there's just a million reasons why this is this is good for folks. The good news is people are absolutely speaking up. Now, I'm sure you know, I mean, we had the largest marches in the history of this country the day after the inauguration, you know, mm-hmm. the women's marches. And it wasn't just women marching, it was everyone marching. And that, I think since then, women have been participating in incredible numbers at town hall meetings, you know, members of Congress coming and telling their Planned Parenthood story, telling why they need health care. We've had, um, when Speaker Ryan said he was going to quote unquote defund Planned Parenthood, you couldn't get a call into his office. The switchboard was so overwhelmed. And the most recent um, research I saw says that 86% of the phone calls coming into Congress uh, have been from women. So people are already doing that, but we're going to have to be speaking up and speaking out for a long, long time. And particularly back at home, these next couple of weeks, you know, members of Congress are going to be home for recess. And it's really important that people go to town hall meetings, uh, call their members, and let them know that they don't appreciate either – the ending of access to Planned Parenthood or the repeal of all these benefits that folks have had under the Affordable Care Act.
2: Because, like, if you don't, let's say you don't get screened and then you end up having cancer and then, you know, you're you're a mom and you die and those kids don't have their mom. It just seems to not make any sense in terms of, like, where money is spent. No,
4: I know. It's crazy. And also, ending access to Planned Parenthood actually costs the government money. Because there are so many preventive health care issues uh, that are, are going to be lost. And so it isn't even good for taxpayers.
2: You know, as someone who's been at the center of the national conversation about women's health for so long, uh, are things worse now? I think a lot of people my age feel like we're in some sort of crisis. Is there any sort of reason for hope that you can see?
4: Well, I think what's, I guess what seems hopeful to me is one is actually we are making progress, and in the in the area of women's health, when we actually have better methods of birth control and at Planned Parenthood, we're we're doing all kinds of things now, being able to you know make appointments for folks on their mobile phones, and uh, in some some states, we're able to actually send you birth control online and things mm-hmm. that can actually take away a lot of the barriers that folks have to care. Uh, I wish that we could spend our time and resources just expanding access to health care instead of fighting Congress. Uh, so that's very frustrating. But the good news is we literally have had more supporters now than ever in our history. And that's why I think shows like this are so important is that I think people are realizing you can't just sort of be frustrated or and you can't be complacent. This is a time to take action. And everybody can make a difference. Um, you can sign up with Planned Parenthood. Uh, you can text and be part of our mobile action network. Um, There's a lot of things you can do and not feel so powerless and like this government is just rolling over you and your rights. Um, It's never been more important to be involved.
2: I mean, do they just like you said that it doesn't make sense, but like do they just hate women? Like, I don't understand. (laughs) Like, are they beholden to some sort of like Christian money bank? Like, I don't. I wish I could explain it,
4: and it's very frustrating. Sometimes I have to go to Congress, and in fact, I had to sit in front of Congress for several hours to explain about women's health. And I do think there is some fundamental lack of empathy for what women deal with. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think a lot of the guys I talk to and are here in Congress. They just think birth control is just like a pack of pills that you get at your local drugstore. And they don't realize that – I mean, this is one of my favorite facts – Um, And you talk about tax dollars and and money and women's budgets. So the average woman in America um, that wants to have kids spends about five years getting pregnant and having children, and she spends actually 30 years trying not to get pregnant. Right. (laughs) So that's 30 years of birth control. And that is an economic issue for pretty much everybody in America. And that is something I think they fundamentally – don't understand they think this is some kind of social political issue and for women it isn't it's just a basic fact of life um but one of the things i'm proudest of is because we got birth control covered under insurance plans and the affordable care act that year just the first year alone women saved 1.4 billion dollars on birth control pills now uh, that's a lot of money wow. and again what i think they don't appreciate uh in congress since most of these folks have never taken birth control is that there are definitely women who are making decisions between groceries and their birth control right? or their rent or their kids' uh, you know, shoes. And we should just take this out as an economic issue because it saves taxpayers' money, it makes women healthier, and it allows folks to support their family when they're ready to have kids. And that's just common sense. Yeah. Look, if more members of Congress um, could get pregnant, we would not be fighting about these issues. I
2: mean – To your wives, like I don't understand. What do you talk about? Okay, sorry.
4: No, and I look. I think this is what's also frustrating. I think a lot of their wives have been been to Planned Parenthood. (laughs) They've been patients, right? Because you know, look, even it was interesting. There was a there was a poll right around the um, election that half of uh, President Trump's own voters supported funding for Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are patients because. Folks come to us for affordable health care. That's why they come to us. Uh, so I just think that folks in Congress are really seriously cut off from their constituents back home.
2: So I wanted to ask, uh, in terms of hope, um, yeah. it's it's was reported that you met with Ivanka Trump. Is there anything that we could take away from that, that, like, you know, for women who are concerned about the president's attitudes, is there some sort of comfort, like what you guys talked about or...
4: Sure, I mean, you know, and well, my 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 kind of way of approaching these things is I'll meet with anybody about Planned Parenthood because I'm so proud of the work we do, and I do think that there are a lot of misconceptions, and so I was able to talk to her about, you know, the patients that we see, so many young women, we are their only healthcare provider. I've talked about the importance, kind of some of the questions you asked about how does Medicaid work, the fact that federal funding doesn't pay for abortion services, the fact that we have a record low in teenage pregnancy, all of that is due to better access to family planning um, through Planned Parenthood and, and other um, providers. I, I mean, I'm very discouraged at what's happened under this administration mm-hmm. for women. I feel like women have really been in the crosshairs. And now that um, Ivanka is part of the administration and her portfolio is women, then I think this is an opportunity for people to communicate with her directly about uh, issues that are important, because I don't think, you know, we can't talk about childcare policy when we're taking away maternity benefits and birth control for women. Right. You know? And you can't talk about, OK, expanding our economy and roll back the protections that we have in place against things like sexual harassment and wage discrimination. And that's what the White House just did. So I think this is a time since this is this is what she is responsible for to let her know uh, how you feel.
2: And she had questions about, like, Medicaid and also, like, how – what tax dollars actually fund at Planned Parenthood that you can answer? Well, I
4: don't know if she had questions. I just told her. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's – look, unfortunately, there are still members of the Congress that I have to explain how Medicaid works, the fact that we're not in the federal budget, the defunding isn't about a line item in the budget. It's actually about blocking access – To preventive care
2: or they think that that their taxes are going for abortions which by the way my taxes pay for a bunch of shit I don't care about but guess what that's part of being in this country
4: (laughs) well and it's just inexcusable that anyone in Congress would not know that I'm very I mean I know we've had a lot of conversations lately about fake news but Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm, I'm just amazed at how many times members of Congress repeat these lies and especially when look Planned Parenthood, we work just like hospitals right. who also provide abortions um, or which also provide abortions. And Yeah, why
2: aren't so. we protesting hospitals? They That's also right. provide a, abortions.
4: It's all the same thing. And so then you do begin to think it really is just an attack on women's health. You know, I try to think about are women better off today than they were um, three months ago when Donald Trump took office? And I think by any measure, we're not. Right. And so this is a time to step up. I mean, I think um, you know, words are good, but women women need action. and we need we need advocacy, and we need folks to stop um, both Congress and this administration from taking away our access to health care and our rights.
2: So taxes are the most confusing and stressful thing in my life. And they became even more confusing and stressful once I had money because when I didn't have any money, all I would do was just like, Take a bunch of my papers that I thought maybe... Like, no one taught me. There was no class, right? So I would just take a bunch of papers that I thought were like, I don't know, W-2s and receipts and freelance shit and some pay stubs. And, like, I just... I wasn't sure what I was supposed to bring. And I would put it in an accordion folder and I would bring it to a nice lady at H&R Block. And I would go, this? Question mark? And then she would look at it and then she would go, either you owe some money or you don't owe some money. And... Uh, Usually because I was freelance I would owe some money and that shit sucked and there were times where I was on IRS payment plans where I could only if I would call them and say I could only afford to pay you $50 a month. Is that okay? And then I paid off $700 that way one time for like a couple years um, in a row I didn't understand that it went to you know, keeping this country afloat. I just had no concept. And I I, again, you know, like everything else on this show, I wish that there had been someone to sit me down and explain why this was happening. And then now that I have some money, and I pay more in taxes, I'm like, yes, this makes sense. Like I pay more, I have more money, so I should pay more. And then the people who were like me, you know, five years ago, maybe shouldn't be paying so much. But I also was, like, momentarily upset when I realized that my taxes were going to be so much. Uh, And that was my 30 seconds I spent as a Republican before I got my head on straight. Now I have my accountant, and uh, if you've been keeping track, Dan, and he is helping me pay them quarterly, and it's been a little bit less stressful to do it that way. So this is my accountant dan and we just finished all the things right that we had to do
4: yes you did
2: so how am i doing
4: you're doing great You end uh doing really well you're able to uh fund your retirement account
2: yeah and
4: uh you paid in all your taxes and now we're paying for the first quarter of
1: 2017.
2: this is crazy yeah
1: and you just need to you know keep good records of your expenses you're doing fine
2: yeah, you have to keep records of all your expenses, even crazy things like your miles in your car and stuff that I don't think anybody does, but I guess they no. do.
4: Well, you're supposed to, and just keep a calendar of all your meetings and where you're going.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's really exciting. <laughs> and <laughs> we should all have a dinner every April, and we should with everyone's friends, and we should just talk about taxes. For that whole dinner And I know that's like You make fun of You're like Oh haha You're like a boring adult And all you want to do Is talk about taxes Yes I All I want to do Is talk about taxes Help <laughs> I'm, I'm about to be 29 And I need to just Talk to my friends About taxes <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who have all their investment income hidden in offshore accounts. Tell them about the show, but also tell them they're the problem. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn, and come on, you know by now that I'll see you next week.